listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2015. Today's episode is titled, Work in the Fear of the Lord. To build an excellent organization requires sound spiritual reality in the hearts of management and workers. Excellent work can only be performed by people who view work as being rooted in spiritual reality and therefore perform their work assignments with wisdom and knowledge from the Lord and in the fear of the Lord. Management must seek to promote a strong spiritual culture in organizations that build and support spiritually sound workers. This is the only way to truly develop and deliver an enduringly excellent organization value proposition. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Work in the Fear of the Lord. Well, this morning we want to talk about Colossians 3, verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1. So this is a, a continuation of Paul's discussion uh, of Colossians 3.17, which is all about the seminal principle for how to live and how to work. He says in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or in deed, and that word for word is logos, which means whatever you speak, whatever you communicate, and the word deed is the word ergon, which refers to all kinds of work activity, any kind of work that you do, whatever it is that you communicate and whatever work you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So that's the seminal principle, I think, for Christianity. You can say this is the great expression of the great commandment. If we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, on all our being, what does that mean? Well, I think the way you express it is through a principle like this, where everything is measured by does it line up with the will and ways of God? Does it reflect Christ? And so as he launches into his next discussion after this verse, Colossians 3.17, he launches into a discussion of the family first. The first place, verse test of anyone and their walk with God and their, their profession of faith in Christ is the family. How well are they walking out that reality? Now, this does not mean you have fully functional families. You can still have dysfunctional families. But it means that the family dynamic, the family culture, is increasingly reflecting the reality of Christ in the home. And then in verse 18, he flows into the workplace. Now, we have to remember the culture of the time to understand what he's saying here beginning in verse 18. The culture of the Roman Empire was very influenced by the Greeks. The Greek philosophers, people like Socrates, uh, Plato, Aristotle, had greatly influenced the culture in the Greek, Greek times that they lived some 500 years before Christ, and that influence had continued to the time of Christ in the first century A.D., and one of the key ideas was this, di this uh, dualism that they expressed. Uh, this was a Greek dualism. This is not a biblical dualism. There is a biblical dualism. For example, God made the universe such that there is day and night. Well, that's a dualistic reality. There's day and night. There's morning and evening. There's male and female. There's righteousness and unrighteousness. There's all kinds of examples of dualism in Scripture that are biblical. What the Greeks did was they distorted truth. And the way they distorted it is they came up with a, with a theory that uh, Plato uh, basically popularized. It was called matter and form. Matter was the physical world. 
form was the immaterial world. And for Plato, the material world was inherently evil. It was defective, imperfect. But for for Plato, the form world, the, form, the world of, of immaterial, the world of thoughts and ideas, concepts, that was perfect. That was that was complete. That was the model. And the, the key was to take the form and impose it upon the material to make the material better. And so that was uh, their view. In fact, the way they viewed uh, the universe was that matter was eternal, and some way or another form came into existence, and form now began to take matter, which was all chaotic and, and unorganized, and, and, and brought form on it that brought organization and order and utilitarian function out of it. So that made matter good, made matter uh, useful, in other words, not good. They never thought it was good. They thought it was useful. So this was the ideas that of Plato and Aristotle and Socrates brought into their, their culture that propagated down into the first century. So one of the implications of that is that there's really no dignity and value in working in the material world because that's inherently imper imperfect, incomplete, chaotic. There's really nothing of value there. The real value of work is working in the form world, the world of ideas and thoughts and philosophy. So that's how the Romans thought. The Romans saw work as beneath them. It was beneath their dignity as human beings, and they were not going to do it. So since the Romans were very aggressive about taking over territory, they turned the citizens of the territories that they conquered into servants, the slaves. And the slaves did the work. So now Paul is writing in this context. He's gonna, he wants to address the workers of his time. Well, they're the slaves. And the people, the slaves are then ruled by the masters who don't work because they are focused on the whole area of thoughts and ideas and philosophy. And a text that you can look at and just and see this is in Acts chapter 17, where Paul visits Athens, and you see indeed that most of the citizens of Athens spent their day in the marketplace not doing business, but talking philosophy. And Paul went into that arena there and shared with them the truth of the word of God uh, in that context. Well, here in Colossae, we have a captured city. And so you have a lot of slaves here, and you have some Roman masters who oversee these slaves. And he's now going to tell them what it means to work in the name of the Lord Jesus. How do you live in the name of the Lord Jesus? Now, keep in mind, a slave was a complete slave. That is, everything that the slave dealt with was, was submitted to the master. So the master had charge of everything. You know, you know what they did, when they did it, how they did it, what they ate, when they rested, you know, who they might marry, how their children were raised. Everything that had to do with the life of that slave was subject to the master. So that's the context here, and you have to understand that to really hear what the Apostle Paul is saying here. It's interesting also to note that that Paul, you know, does not take up the issue of slavery, although there are other places like in, in the book of Philemon where he does indicate that, that you know, freedom would be better. You know, the slavery is probably not the desired institution. But, but Paul's objective here is alignment with Christ first and then dealing with the institution of slavery later.
So I love the way he sets his priorities, and in his letters, he, he stays to his priorities. Some of us may have had different priorities, but I think Paul's priorities are probably better than ours would be. So here's what he says. He says, bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Now, that, that means he's talking about your human masters because Paul, is, Paul clearly understands that we have one master, and that is the Lord, and, and any other masters that we might have are sub, subservient to the Lord. They, are, they operate under delegated authority from the Lord, and so we are supposed to respond to them as we would the Lord. So bond servants obey in all things your masters in the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. So he's now told you right here that work is supposed to be done in the fear of the Lord. This means work is a spiritual activity. Work should be approached with all the soberness, the somberness of any spiritual activity. Now, sadly, today, uh, we don't really have a sense of that. Um, we, we continually default to this Greek dualistic thinking that says the form world is more important. It's higher. And so the way we've, we've interpreted that today is that if you do work in what's regard a church setting, that's spiritual work. But if you do work in the marketplace, in the workplace, that's not spiritual work. That's just, if you've got that going on, and we all do on some level, that's how Greek dualism, distorted Greek dualism is still impacting us today, and we've got to reject that. We cannot, you know, think non-biblically in that area and expect that to lead us to a good, a good place. So we've got to approach work in the fear of God. And he's going to tell you in the next verse more specifically what that means. But I wanted to back up and point out a couple of things to you. These bond servants, these workers, they're told to obey. This word for obey is the Greek word hupakuo. Now, hupakuo is a compound word. Hupo means under, and akuo means to hear. We get the word acoustics from that. So hupakuo means to be under someone with the intention of hearing and an implied intentionality of obeying. This happens to be the very same word that's used of children. It says children are supposed to hupakuo their parents. They're supposed to listen to their parents with the intent to obey their parents. Well, same way with the slaves. You're supposed to obey, that is, listen to your masters with the intent to obey. And so that's the level of, of subservience we should have. Now, some of you may be familiar with the term paternalistic capitalism. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, I, may I introduce that to you? Uh, that actually developed in the middle part of the 19th century. You may recall that that's the century of the uh, Industrial Revolution. And one of the keys to the Industrial Revolution was the ability to produce uh, food in larger quantities with fewer people. And the key invention that developed that was Cyrus McCormick's reaper, uh, the grain reaper. And by the way, Cyrus McCormick was a very godly man. And a lot of things we could say about him. In fact, I've got a story of Cyrus McCormick on my website if you're interested. Uh, but it's a very interesting story how he got where he was, including 
having to deal with some great hardship. That's always the way it is. God always put hardship in our path to build us and strengthen us. Well, Cyrus had that. But in the midst of the 18th century, uh, when the Industrial Revolution developed, the Christian community was totally off guard. They had no idea of what was coming and how to respond to it. And so as organizations begin to be formed, men like H.J. Like Hines, who formed the Hines Company in the middle part of the 1870s, which I have a story about him, too, on my website if you're interested. Um, and he went through a lot of trauma, too, very similar to what McCormick went through. And as he is growing and developing his business, he is looking for help and guidance from his local church. But his local church leaders did not know what to do and did not recognize that they should be looking to Scripture, searching out how do we do business now with these larger organizations. We haven't had these organizations before. What do we do? So what came from that is, is people like Heinz begin to pioneer because they were forced into that because the churches did not support them well. And so he brought his understanding of biblical worldview as best he could into the workplace, and he developed, along with other men, the idea of paternalistic capitalism. And paternalistic capitalism basically says that most workers are not very capable of making wise choices. They're like children. So I, as the, the senior leader of this organization, and a student of Scripture, one who's been taught the Word of God, I have a better worldview. I've got a more understanding of truth. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to convey this truth to them and help them make better choices. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to then, you know, build houses and sell these houses to them at very reduced rates and really low mortgages to allow them to live better. And I'm going to put together schools. And so your, their children will have education, you know, hire the teachers, organize the schools. We'll have parks and we'll organize community activities in the parks. We'll have legal services. We will have well, training on food preparation, how to make food. Of course, he finds was in the food business, so this was easy for him. But we are going to train the women how to cook and really build, you know, have nutritious meals for the family. We're going to train them in Scripture. We're going to have Bible classes and teach them the Word of God. And you can see how this thing was just growing. It's like a family. These big companies became big families, and that's where the whole concept of paternalistic capitalism came in. Well, if you were going to find a text, to support the idea of paternalistic capitalism, you might appeal to this text right here, and specifically to the fact that the Apostle Paul used the very same word that relative to servants and obeying masters that he used relative to children obeying parents. It's the same word. It's to listen with the intent to obey. So that's that's very important that we recognize the the very close relational connection here that needs to happen between the bondservant and the, the master or between the worker and the boss. Now, notice he says this, not with eye service as men pleasers. This is not something you're supposed to do outwardly. This is supposed to be done inwardly. It is supposed to come from the heart. Now, how is it going to come from the heart? Well, the only way it can come from the heart is it has to, the heart has to resonate with whatever it is that slave is doing. 
This is a basic statement that points out the importance of passion, of calling. The very first element of C4 is calling. And that element ultimately is really what God has put in you that's about the destiny and purpose that he wants to work through you. And so getting in touch with that is the challenge, but that's what we have to do. One of the reasons of the SLA message is to help people learn to live out the reality of this verse, of this text, to learn to get in touch with the call of God on their life. And we know from our training that if we don't, don't do that profoundly, we'll get in touch with our flesh, and our fleshly desires are not good. Now, I'm using flesh in a different sense that the Apostle Paul uses here. He's using flesh in the sense of, saying human beings. I'm using flesh as a reference to the vestiges of the old nature that we still have even after we've come to Christ. So we have these fleshly desires that are all about me and what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. It's all about my will and my ways, and those are things that have to die. They've got to be put to death. That, and that's what he's been talking about in this chapter 3 is putting to death these things. And so as we put these death these things, then we have an opportunity to get in touch with the true destiny and purpose of God that's in the heart. And that's what we're after. What is it God has put in me that when I do it, there's something resonates in me, and I know this is what I have been put here to do. This is what I am called to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. So it's very important that we recognize the, the, the extreme value and passion in finding our calling. Now also note this, that he says in this obedience thing, this whole submission to the will and ways of the master, we are supposed to do that in all things. All things. Everything. Not just a few things. Everything. Now, again, the, this relationship that, that, was, that existed between the, the servant and the master was one of total submission. You know, the, the word doulos, it means slave. And there was a sense in which there, was, there were voluntary slaves. We saw some of this even in the 19th century in the United States where some of the slaves, after they were emancipated in the middle part of the 19th century, chose to continue to be slaves. And so they were voluntary, voluntary slaves. Well, they had the same kind of thing in the first century, voluntary slaves. And these voluntary slaves would signify their desire to be a voluntary slave by a mark. They would take a, a, a tool and they would pierce a hole in the ear, on the lobe of the ear, which would signify this person is a voluntary slave. And as a voluntary slave, everything in that person's life was submitted to the master. Well, that's the sense of it here. Everything, the scope of my life is submitted to this, my earthly master. And, of course, behind that is a belief that my earthly master is submitted to the heavenly master. So this is a powerful text here pointing to us of how work is a spiritual activity. It's to be done based on what God has put in our heart, which implies the master's job is to discern the call of God on the servant and put the servant in the right place doing the right things. You don't put a servant in the field who's called to do the cooking. You don't put a, a servant, you know, in the barn taking care of the animals if they're called to sewing and making clothes. You don't put a servant in the marketplace, you know, if they're called to do accounting and book work. You don't have a, a servant 
selling something, if they're called to do, you know, maybe janitorial work, you've got to discern what is the call of God on each one and properly utilize them. So that's an implicit responsibility of the master. And you'll see when we get to chapter 4, verse 1, where the Apostle Paul now gets explicit about that, pointing out the masters have got to set the context for the slaves, the workers, to do what they're called to do well. So there's two responsibilities. You've got the, the slave's responsibility. You have the master's responsibility. Both of them have to step up and do their roles correctly for this to work. But right now he's just focusing on the slave, pointing out your work has value. It has eternal significance. God cares about it. And you're supposed to do it in the fear of God. You know, it's so interesting that today the idea of Christ in the marketplace is generally means people bring things to their work that they do in other places. For example, we come and we bring prayer meetings to our to our office. So we, we pray before we start the day. Okay. Or we bring a Bible study at lunch. We do a Bible study at lunch. Or we bring tracts and we pass out tracts. Well, these are things we might do in other contexts as well. But all we've done is just bring events and maybe a few practices into the workplace that we might call Christian. But the reality is we still do our work like pagans. We still look to the pagan world to tell us how to do our work. And, for example, how you hire people. Yeah, I, I'm just amazed. I, I go into organizations that are run by Christians, you know, frequently, and what I find is they don't hire people any different, by and large, than the world. They do the same things. They don't know the principles. They don't know C4, for example. And if they do know C4, they have no idea how to practice it, how to apply it. And so we have a, a very superficial view of Christianity in the workplace, if you have any view at all. There are many Christians that have no view of all of Christianity in the workplace. But if you do, it's very superficial, and we're still defaulting to worldly thinking about how we do our work. So we are not profoundly Christian. We've got to recognize working in the fear of the Lord is really about getting profoundly Christian, which means I have to have a biblical worldview of the, the work area I'm in. If I'm a consultant, I have to have a biblical worldview of consulting. If I'm a coach, I need a biblical worldview of coaching. And let me just use that as an example. Since I've, I've had encounters with three uh, Christian men in recent years who profess to be strong Christians, and one is a former pastor. The other two are leaders, uh, elder-level leaders in their churches. So all of them are in leadership in the Christian community or have been. And so as I explored their coaching philosophy with them, to see if they had a biblical worldview of coaching, I discovered a presupposition that they all adopt, that they get from their training, from their secular training that they all went through. And one of them even has an MBA from a major university in this country in coaching. And here's the presupposition, and that is within you is all the power you need to do whatever it is you want to do. It's in you. Okay, and so that what they tell you is, you know, coaching is not about teaching, it's not about training, it's not about, uh, about guiding, it's about drawing out of people what's in them. 
but there is no reference to the Holy Spirit. So what you've done is you've taken something. Had they referred to the Spirit, now that would be, that would be a, a biblical way to view it. But they don't refer to the Spirit. What they're referring to is the human ability to do that. They assume there's a human ability independent of the Spirit to do that. That is the common denominator that I see in coaching today that makes it secular. It makes it humanistic. So what I've seen of Christian coaching, supposedly coaching by Christians, has not been biblically based. And when I've challenged them, they've had a hard time seeing it, which really, really concerned me about where these people are with the Lord. If you can't readily see that the power you need to do the work you're called to do must come from Christ in you, dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. If you can't see that, I don't even know if you're a Christian. My, that's very foundational to me. So Paul, I think, is trying to really go to great lengths to tell us, hey, you need to recognize walking in the fear of God is absolutely critical to being a great worker. And it's not just doing some practices. It's not sprinkling fairy dust on what you're doing here. It's really thinking biblically about how to work and why you're doing what you're doing. What is the will of God for my industry? And what are the ways of God for my industry? And I have to kick out these best practices, which that's what everybody seems to default to, and now say, what are the biblical best practices? What does Scripture have to say? How do we go about doing this particular industry? How do we build airplanes? How do we produce food? How do we operate businesses? How do we run restaurants? How do we you know, sell retail? How do we run the Internet? All these things that we're doing in the workplace, we've got to think biblically about how to do them if we're going to walk in the fear of God in our workplace. And we, by and large, don't know how to do that. Well, this is the challenge in front of us. If we're ever going to learn to practice Colossians 3.17 in the workplace as workers, we have got to learn the power of walking in the will and ways of God in the fear of God in the workplace, and that work is a, inherently a spiritual activity that requires great prayer, great sensitivity to the Spirit, great study of Scripture, wrestling with truth to understand a biblical worldview of everything. So may the Lord give us the grace to walk in that reality in Jesus.